Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Jim Zack, architect and principal of Zack DeVito Architecture and Construction, a multidisciplinarian design office and architect-led construction company providing architecture, interior design, and construction services throughout Northern California. For more information, feel free to visit www.zachdevito.com. That's www.zachdevito.com. Hello, Jim. We're honored to have you on the Modern Architect Radio Show today. Good morning, Tom. I'm very honored to be here. I'm very excited to participate in this really wonderful series. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Jim, can you share with us, as we talked earlier before we got on our show, some early inspiration as far back as you can recall to kind of, to where what you're doing now, and you can kind of see how it may have began, even as far back as you can recall, that there's that connection. Yeah, it's great. I think the origin, the architect's origin story is a really great thing. And we were just talking about it in my office recently. We have a summer intern. We went around the office and uh, everybody kind of gave their idea of when they started thinking about it. And for me, unlike a lot of architects, I didn't have a you know, 11 year old epiphany that this is my calling (laughs) and this is what I'm going to be doing. But in, in retrospect, I feel like I kind of had this perfect upbringing of events that led me to what I do now. And it goes back as far as, um, middle school and taking shop classes. And when I was in the seventh grade, this was in the seventies. And I think we were beginning to become a more open society, a less sexist approach to things. And when I was in seventh grade, girls took home economics in eighth grade and boys took industrial arts. And that's just the way it was. And they offered the seventh graders to take these classes, but only if the boys took half a year of home ec and the girls took half a year of industrial arts. And so in seventh grade, I took this industrial arts class and just loved making things. And in eighth grade, I guess I became somewhat the teacher's pet. And (laughs) there was a project that an outside organization asked the shop teacher if we could if we could build a playhouse for them a very mm-hmm. well-designed well-built playhouse that was auctioned off to raise money for this nonprofit. i don't even remember what it nice. was and, and so you'd volunteer and you'd work after hours you'd come on saturday so in eighth grade i was building this little you know 10 by 10 playhouse 
And it's not that that gave me inspiration into architecture, but I just had that interest in making things from a very young age. Um, I rode motorcycles when I was a kid and I started taking apart engines when I was really young, 12, 13 years old. And just that idea of taking things apart and putting them back together again was in my life very early. Yeah, and what school? Yeah. Were you in California? I grew up in okay. Carmel. Okay. Oh, Carmel. So we were there yesterday. Pretty, pretty local. And, awesome. Um, so kind of stayed close to my roots in Northern California. In high school, my dad was buying and selling and remodeling houses. And so my summer job from when I was 14 was helping him remodel houses. And we would just paint and sheetrock and do very basic construction. From 14. 14, yeah. 15 year old summer job. So I had that background. And when I finished high school, I didn't have any plans to go to college right away. I was not really that interested in college. <laughs> and at that point, you know, I took drafting classes in high school. I mean, I did sort of these things, but it wasn't with any intent. You know, probably it was just because I, if I took a drafting class, I didn't have to take a math class. <laughs> um, but immediately after high school, I, I got a job working for a contractor building houses. And so for the next four years, um, I was a carpenter and it was a very small company. And we literally built houses from foundation to finish, as they say. And I sort of had an aptitude for it and learned very quickly. And, um, you know, by the time I was 20, I could build a house. And um, Really? So just on your own? pretty amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, I worked for a guy, but it's sure. like I knew all the things that you needed to do to, to build houses. From by the quite, time you're 20 years old. Sure. And um, That's excellent. Yeah. And at some point I started working on my own and doing some small projects by myself started realizing I probably should go to school, taking some classes at a junior college, took a lot of drafting classes. They weren't architecture, they were mechanical drawing, but was very interested in that. And uh-huh. I still didn't have a direction to go into architecture at that point, but I was still involved in drawing, involved in making. I remember working with my dad on a project once we was for a friend of his was building a new house and just seeing the drawings and the graphic standards is this amazing book that architects use as a resource. I think less so, but it's just this book of all the drawings and details of architecture. And I was just sort of fascinated by it. And I started taking classes at junior college and they didn't really offer architecture until the very, very end of the time there. And I took my very first architecture class. I was probably 23 or 24 And at the time, my dad had a little piece of property with a small house on a very big lot, and an enterprising developer in that neighborhood realized they could tear down these small houses, subdivide the land, and build Mm -hmm. two houses or three houses. And so my dad took me over to this house and said, here, we're going to tear this little house down, and if you help me, you can have one. And so I went to my teacher in the architecture class and I said, instead of doing this project you want everybody to do, can I just design these two houses for my school Mm -hmm. project? So basically at 23, I did my first design build development project and wasn't an architect, um, was in my very first class in school. And, you know, so all these series of experiences just sort of led me to, you know, okay, now you're in college, what are you going to do? Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of led me on my path. Um, so it really wasn't a, a moment in time that I said, I'm going to be an architect. It was a whole series of events that just sort of all led me to that point. That's outstanding. So you have a foundation, like very few. Yeah, really. Yeah, really. I agree. And I have to say, it took me a long time to really understand and grasp that. You know, I, I ended up going to Berkeley for undergraduate and stayed there for two more years into graduate school which I think, you know, pretty amazing considering I had no interest in going Very to college so. <laughs> and um, finished graduate school and opened an office. And it didn't oh. occur to me that that was 
something that people didn't do. I had this experience and this background when I was finished with undergraduate, rather than going and getting a summer job or a job for a year, I bought a house in Berkeley and remodeled it. And it was just my nature to be more entrepreneurial. And I had this attitude that I can do this. So I finished school and literally opened an office. And um, in retrospect, I realize now, you know, having had lots of employees and lots of young architects and seeing how this profession works, that was just a completely insane idea. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I made it work. And here I am 26 years later and still in business about 200 feet away from my first office. Really? Yeah. Even now? Yeah. But I love that idea that you had. You finished school and opened up your office, which is, you say, pretty insane. But in the area we live, it's it's kind of the culture of the people that are from specifically Northern California. Do you? Yeah, I think there's a uh, spirit of entrepreneurship here in the Bay Area. I think it's just my background and my nature and maybe how I was brought up and probably really in the end, just my personality. And um, I guess it's somewhat of a risk taker in many respects. And I rented a space mainly so I could have a workshop so I could make things. And that was your intent. Huh? That was my okay. intent. And I rented a space with a friend who was actually still in school and um, very successful local architect, friend of mine. And we rented a space together and I had a workshop and I actually interviewed for a couple of jobs and had met an architect, Mark Horton, who had an office across the street and went and interviewed with him and asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I really just rented this space across the street and I had a little <laughs> workshop. And, and, and he really? said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just going to make furniture and things. And, and he said, oh, I have a job. I need a conference table. You want to make it? So instead of hiring me as an architect, he hired me to make a table for one of his projects. And that was my first project. And here I am. <laughs> really? So yeah, you've got some significant entrepreneurial chops. Yeah, and it's not—it's by just within your own. And hey, you know what's interesting about that is uh, a lot of uh, people who are—you know—we want to teach leadership. You would like to teach entrepreneurship, and I know we're this is an architect, primarily an architect show. Uh, yet, I'd love to hear your take on this. Is that you can teach those to a degree, the leadership, the entrepreneurship, but usually the the folks that do this. They're like unique outliers. I agree. You I, do? I, I think that architects by nature are somewhat conservative, um, not politically, but they're just take on things on business. And this my experience with people is they tend to be pretty deliberate and pretty conservative. And, you know, if you want to start doing things out of the box, an entrepreneurial spirit is kind of the opposite of that. Um, yeah. I remember there's a quite well-known architect developer in San Diego, Jonathan Siegel, and far as I know, in 25 years, he's never had a client. He only does his own development work. And he did a lecture here. He's a quite popular speaker. And there was a hundred people came to hear him talk about what he does and how you make money as an architect developer. And he, he's an evangelist for the architect as developer. And realizing at the end of that talk that, you know, there was probably out of that hundred or so people in the room, you know, maybe three or four people that could actually do what he's doing. He was one of them. I was another. (laughs) And, you know, maybe one or two others. And at the end of the day, all these architects want to be developers and want to do something different than the norm, but it's, it's quite difficult. And I don't, you know, yeah. You think so? You think you're born with it in some ways? I hate to say it. Yes, you are. I suppose. I don't want to sound you know, egotistical about it. It's just kind of what you are and it's just your nature, you know? And so I guess it is, it's just suppose you're born with it. And, you know, perhaps it's, my dad was somewhat entrepreneurial and grew up around that, grew up around real estate and discussions about real estate. So kind of goes back to the origin. It's like all these conversations early in life kind of, I guess, lead you to a point. Yeah. 
That's terrific. How about you know the 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 people that have worked for you? You the how's the, what's the culture like? We've had a pretty diverse group of people over the years work for us. I mean, as I say, I've been doing this for quite a while, so we've had quite a few people in and out of our office, and most of them are pretty typical architects. You know, they finish school, they get some work experience, and most of them, I would say, don't have that same or you know, entrepreneurial yeah. nature. It's yeah. Is it? I would, I'm curious is if that if it naturally filters into them. Well, because uh, you are, we've tried very hard. I mean, I think, you know, to go beyond just this discussion on entrepreneurs, it's really what we do is trying to combine both design and construction. And I think our challenge has always been finding people that have that interest and passion and, and experience. And that's, that's pretty challenging. And I guess it, is it really, yeah, I I think that, you know, our, our, the academic approach to architecture and the education of architects tends to be academic and not that hands-on and, there is a trend for a lot of schools these days to have design build programs, which I think is wonderful, but most architects don't get their hands dirty and they don't know how to make things. And I finding people that, that do is somewhat challenging. I and mean, we have a couple of people now that have a, some background in construction mm-hmm. and um, I have architects that become project managers and I have a young architect who's a furniture maker and he's always made things and he's worked for other companies that design build. So he has a very, strong interest in it. So we've had some people that have that breadth of experience between design and construction, but it's not everybody and it's it's hard to find. Yeah, you know, I noticed also just on your website and the, the projects that we've seen to you've got a lot of range in your skill set and it's making sense now from when you began even if you went back as far as 7th grade to now that you that's why would you consider that a good reason why you have that sort of range? Because you've gone through those experiences. You've gone from a furniture maker to a developer to, uh, uh, you know, obviously an architect. And the path that you've gone is, as I say, is really unique. And in a way, if I'm reaching, tell me. But in a way, I think that's almost an ideal way to be a really good architect. Well, I think most architects have some breadth and we get pigeonholed. And a lot of it is just what projects do you get? Who hires you? What kind of clients do you have? And I was pretty aware, even when I started working, that my path was going to potentially be somewhat limiting where I would end up. And I'm not going to be designing museums, libraries, and public buildings. I just don't have that experience. We've grown to being a pretty strong practice, but still on relatively modest projects and still mostly in the residential realm and the commercial realm of private clients. And I think that if you have ambitions to work on large projects, you have to go work for someone who works on large mm-hmm. projects. You can't, it's very difficult to grow into that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not impossible, but it's challenging. So excellent. Um, excellent. Well, let's continue this on. You're listening to the modern architect KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Comprehensive information on Bay Area classical music concerts can be found at the San Francisco Classical Voice website, sfcv.org. For daily, weekly, or monthly information on classical music concerts throughout the Bay Area, simply visit sfcv.org. We're talking today with Jim Zack, architect and principal of Zack DeVito's Architecture Construction. For more information, feel free to visit www.zachdevito.com that's www.zachdevito.com Jim, what recent projects are you working on if you're at liberty to share with us? Sure. We've, over the years, we've done primarily residential work and 
small commercial work with an emphasis on a lot of restaurants. And that continues to this day. We also do some development, usually residential, small-scale residential. Um, current projects, uh, we have a quite nice two-unit building in Noe Valley here in San Francisco, which has an interesting lineage. It started as a development project that I bought a piece of property with a partner and had it entitled and um, ultimately actually found a buyer to buy it from us before we built it. Really? Um, which was interesting. Um, <laughs> kind of in this market, I'm not quite sure it was the right decision, but it was the safe decision, maybe <laughs> antithetical to my entrepreneurial spirit. But Also, you have a really we, strong pragmatic side. Yeah, perhaps. Um, <laughs> So we're, we just started construction about a month ago, and it's okay. an interesting interesting project on a challenging site, lots and lots of excavation foundation, so that's pretty exciting. We have another project, which is the first project in quite a few years that we are building that we didn't design. So, you know, as you have described, we have a design component and a construction component to our office, and we typically only build projects we design, but we're starting to branch out, and um, we're building a, um, remodeling a building at a mortuary in Colma for a chapel and mortuary. It's at a, sorry, at a cemetery in Colma designed by a colleague of mine, John Lum here in San Francisco. And it's a kind of fun, interesting project. Um, take an old building from around 1960 and pretty much strip it down and then rebuild it, reconfigure it into a contemporary facility for, for a cemetery. Yeah. It sounds like you're a little excited. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting project. I think it's a, sort of classic project for an architecture student to design some, you know, mausoleum at a cemetery. So it's a, it's a nicely designed project and it's um, fun, interesting client, very large corporate client. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. And then we have a number of other residential house projects and some smaller multifamily projects. Yeah. What, do you have a favorite, so to speak? If it comes through well, your office that you go, you know what, these are going to be really fun. Or did- I still really like doing custom houses for a, a good, well-informed well-intended client that understands design, has a good budget, is helpful. We do a lot of projects that have relatively modest budgets, at least by Bay Area standards, but doing a really nicely designed house for a client that has an interest in design is, I think, still one of the most satisfying things. Yeah. Um, do you reach out to, to for new clients? Do they come to you, a bit of both? A little bit How of to, both. Yeah. I think um, yeah. marketing and business development for small firm architects is a constant constant challenge but yeah we we reach out and people do find us and come to us yeah. so is it all northern both. california primarily primarily yeah okay. Our, we've done some projects a couple in la and las vegas once in oregon have a project now in oregon a couple houses in the coast of oregon which is kind of fun oh, but mostly northern california and then obviously construction is a bit more local yeah <laughs> a lot more local yeah so we tend to build mostly in san francisco or very close to San Francisco, but we can design anywhere. Yeah, that's terrific. Yeah, I love that, the architecture and construction component. How has that worked well for your clients? Well, I think it has to be a client that understands the benefits of it. Um, Not every client wants it. Some clients like the more traditional model of an architect and contractor and owner. Some clients understand, and we think it's a great model. I think for me, the primary benefit is the ultimate success of the project and the ability to tailor the design of the project to really fit the client's need from the beginning first sketch to when they move in and that the design never really stops. I think that's true on most architect-driven 
design-focused projects, even if there's another contractor. I just think it's easier for us to maintain that design integrity and that focus on on design and kind of fine-tuning. And whether that's spatial or materials or down to the really finite details, we're kind of in control of that, you know, really micro component of a project you know we we think about what screws to use in a stairway you know yeah we don't have to have a lot of communication back and forth between an architect an owner a contractor it's just a little bit more immediate and direct so i think for me the primary benefit of design build is kind of the final product yeah and the final product what's it like when your uh, your clients see that final product I don't know if you ever gauge it, but yeah. uh, what's the, the general... Like? Generally speaking, we have it's a bit of a cliche for service industry companies is that we exceed our clients' expectations, yeah. you know, and it's something I think we do most of the time. I love that, that. People, most of the time, yeah. I don't think you get it every time. Yeah. I think that it's a complicated dynamic between a client and an architect and building, and it's a complicated process, and I don't think it always comes out 100%. Most architects are going to tell you that, is it? Yeah. You know, it has to be a mutually beneficial relationship and communicative relationship all the way around, and it just doesn't always work. Yeah. Most of the time it does. Yeah. How have you work with the city of San Francisco because it can be challenge, it can be challenging at times. Well, that's a leading question. Yeah, Working but you've done well. I've San Francisco seen, yeah. is amazingly challenging. Amazingly challenging and it gets more difficult all the time and I think there's this this pretty significant disconnect between the political desire to build more housing and more affordable housing and a more diverse housing base and political desire is there and the political will seems to fail a lot of times. Um, the bureaucracy is difficult. They try. I have to applaud. It's mainly the planning department. I think they try really hard, but it's a, it's a really big ship to sail and it's difficult to change direction. Yeah. Ed Lee, months before he passed away, had issued a directive, mayor's directive to all departments that said anybody who does anything related to approving housing needs to evaluate their process and, and make recommendations on how they can simplify it. And planning department came up with a you know 20 or 30 page document which they're now implementing and i think it will help but what does that mean that it takes 16 months to get a house approved instead of 18 and you know that's a pretty ridiculous thing and how it contributes to costs and and everything it's like who can afford to sit on a piece of property for 18 months waiting for a building permit you know and that's our reality Everybody knows there's a problem and they try to fix it and it doesn't really ever change very much. Really? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a, as I shared with you before, uh, we started the show is I'm a very big advocate in, for architects in a very uh, leading capacity in cities. If not, ideally, if a mayor had a, was an architect, I just think that there's a real objectivity that they see for a city, the entire grid, the built environment, that if you're a mayor and you're, you've got there politically, you just won't have that bet. You just can't. It's just not built into you. Whereas if you're an architect, you have uh, that you have that built into you to to look at things objectively yeah. and how how it all works and how it can be a better a better built environment. So I love to advocate, and I am advocating for mayors to have someone on the, if not their board or directly, almost their right or left hand uh, in leadership. Like similar to what Los Angeles has with uh, Mayor Garcetti and uh, Chris Hawthorne as their chief designer. What's your thoughts on that? That's an amazing idea. Okay. It'd be wonderful to have that implemented in San Francisco and uh, have effectively a design 
coordinator. Yeah. Um, something yeah. like that. I think planning recently in the last few years has started to hire architects, which is oh, pretty progressive, yes. you know, and that there's now a handful of architects on staff at planning that um, I think had a pretty large impact on how things get approved and maybe creating a more consistent base of approval, what they're, what they think is good and bad. So that's helpful, but it's still pretty micro. Yeah. What you're talking about is pretty macro and having someone that has the ear of the mayor that could... Yeah. Oh, no, I make no bones things. about it. Yeah. Not it's really. A, it's a great idea. So let's work on <laughs> yeah. implementing that. Oh, we are. You know, even yeah. in, the, in not just in the show, but off shows, I really, I really push that. How, how else do you see that sort of uh, influence helping a city become a better city in a community? Well, I think where we have such a challenging environment to build in, somebody who could really present to the mayor and the board of supervisors the challenges that we see day to day. Mayor Farrell, who was the temporary mayor before London was London Breed was voted in, had an open house and I you could sign up for, you know, ten minutes with the mayor. And oh, and I and okay. I had this idea that like, great, I'd love to have the mayor's ear for ten minutes. Yeah. And I signed up and I didn't make the cut, I guess. But you know, oh, really? it's like I kind of joke once in a while. It's like the mayor should try to go get a permit to remodel his house, you know, because right. like, yeah. I don't know that they really understand the challenges. And I know recently the um, planning department proposed that there's a part of the process in San Francisco when you're doing a project that is a new building or expands an existing building is you have to notify your neighbors. It's a quite common process in yeah, California sure. land use. And for the most part, that's a 30-day notification period. You have to mail out drawings and description of your project to the neighbors, and they have 30 days to register concern or complaint or whatever. And the plan department proposed that they reduce that to 20. And the board of supervisors said, no, we think it's good at 30. Oh. And so that's where I'm saying there's this okay. disconnect between the political desire to create more housing, yet the political will to change the process to actually make it easier and smoother and take less time doesn't seem to be there. Yeah. So the, the, the weight is towards the concerns of the neighbors and the neighborhood and the city in general, as opposed to the person proposing a project. And I don't know, realistically, does it really matter that it's 30 days or 20 days? But it seems like every step of the process always... You know, it doesn't take 30 days to go through that process. It actually takes two months because of the processing time on either end. And so yeah. everything adds time and it adds time. Time adds is money. money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really good. one. How has construction evolved, say, in the last five, ten years in your experience? That's a really great question, Tom. It's, um, it's a challenging environment to build in in the Bay Area. I read an article recently that said San Francisco has the highest construction costs in the world, <laughs> which I found kind of amazing. And, you know, and you're like, really, is that, is that really possible? Wow. And then you think about it, it's like, well, maybe we're only second, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, it's still pretty dramatic. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that it just impacts everything. And this concern about what I think of as the gentrification of the city is, it's pretty real. And that what it costs to live here, what it costs to build here, the time it takes to build, Another article, a white paper from a, a company in the construction industry said that on average since 2012, which I guess is sort of the you know, beginning of the end of the recession, mm -hmm. that we've seen you know, on average about a 7 to 8% increase in construction costs a year in the Bay Area. And so if you, the way I think about it, it's like if I have projects that take 18 to 24 months to get approvals and I tell a client they're going to spend a million dollars, with nothing else other than appreciation, it's a million two by the time we start work, you know, and whose fault is that, you know, <laughs> and it's no one's fault. It's just yeah. kind of the reality. I've been trying to hire carpenters for about three months and I can't find anybody. 
Really? I, really, I can't. I can't. I sent an email out to about 10 of my colleagues last week saying that I know we're all in the same boat, but if anybody you know, has any referrals to a carpenter or a project manager, let me know. And universally, they all said we're looking for the same thing. Yeah. You know? So everyone's in the same boat. So if we can't find people to build, then what does that do? That just also increases costs and yeah. time. And, and I don't think that we've seen the impact yet of what's going to happen in Sonoma and Napa once those houses really start getting under construction. It's going to just draw people away from the city to work up there. Yeah. So it's going to get the, more difficult. Yeah. So three months to hire it. Uh, it's, and that, and that, I'm sure you're giving it all you, all you can. Yeah. Wow. Let's touch back on that when we return. This is the Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Drivers, turn off your idling engines. Every day, millions of parked vehicles idle needlessly, sometimes for hours. An idling car releases the same pollutants as a moving car and in 10 minutes adds one pound of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere along with other pollutants linked to human illnesses such as asthma, bronchitis, and cancer. Contrary to popular belief, restarting your engine does not burn more fuel than leaving it idling. And warming it up for more than 30 seconds actually harms it. Turn off your idling engine if you need to wait for more than 10 seconds. Save gas, money, and the air we breathe. For more information, contact the Environmental Defense Fund at edf.org. We're talking today with Jim Zach, architect and principal of Zach DeVito's Architecture Construction. For more information, feel free to visit www.zachdevito.com. That's www.zachdevito.com. Jim, about your partner... Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think it's just, you know, our firm in general is I think um, in situations like this, you know, you're talking to me and in the end I don't do everything and there's a lot of people that are, work in our realm and one is my my partner, is my wife as well, Excellent. Lisa DeVito, yeah. and um, she's been pretty instrumental. She's a, a very different perspective on design than I do, I think, and it's a good balance between my interest in what I think of as sort of the constructed aspect of architecture sure. and, and she's probably a bit more of a modernist and minimalist. I'm definitely pretty okay. modernist myself, but it's a it's a good tempering position in terms of our design. And then we have a you know a great cadre of people that work both in our office and in the field. And we have uh, a partner in the construction company, Bruce Wickstrom, who's just a master builder and he's the guy out in the field every day getting things built. And so, you know, a handful of other people that are really instrumental in Changes yeah. over the years, but we've had some great people that contribute to everything. Yeah, how did you form your your partnership or your wife or better yet, how did you meet? <laughs> if you're okay, with liberty to share with it, yeah, I think there's a there's a large number of architect couples. I think it's a pretty <laughs> common thing. We didn't meet in school, but her sister went to architecture school at Berkeley, and I didn't really know her. She was younger than I was. I, in retrospect, I knew who she was, but I had a friend who was friends with my wife's sister and okay. we eventually met. Actually, we met at a kind of a design event back in uh, the early 90s. A couple of friends and I, we put on a what we now call a pop-up, which no one knew what that didn't, yeah. term didn't exist, but we rented space. Actually, a friend of mine, he just became the, the uh, dean of architecture at uh, CCA. Oh, excellent. Crumwoody. It was really his idea. And um, we found a developer who gave us a space and we basically did a furniture show and uh, kind of designers and architects making furniture. And and so we met at the opening of that very first event in Oakland. Really? Okay. 
And so it was like immediately like, hey, yeah, what do no, you do? What no, are, it I wasn't quite immediate, but okay. Okay. <laughs> it took a little bit of effort. <laughs> okay. Okay. But then how, how about the formation of, of the, the partnership um, with the company? Well, this was literally within months of me starting my office. I just finished school and started my office and she was working for another firm and she worked for a few other firms for a few years and I was more or less by myself for a few years and then I eventually you know, had a few helpers and she started helping me sort of part-time after hours. If I needed help, she'd help. And I think eventually we just got busy enough where it made sense that rather than you working, why don't we just work together? And yeah. I think that was soon after we got married, I guess. Yeah, I so, like the flow that Zach yeah. DeVito. Yeah. It really sounds... It's, it's like you it. can't forget it for Some, sure. Sometimes confusing on whether it's a single person or not. No, but. no well, that you have the yeah. the, the break, yes. so you you can tell. Uh, interesting about being a developer. How has that kind of helped yeah. shape your uh, your um, your practice? Being a developer as well. I think it's great. I think some of our best projects are the ones that we've done ourselves that we don't have a client, and I think that that's both challenging and opens up opportunities. Sometimes the restrictions of a client, whether it be budget or style or whatever it is, are helpful. Complete like freedom that. sometimes is difficult, but at the end of the day, not having someone looking over your shoulder. Um, I suppose our restrictions on development projects are budget, but I think it's led us to being very creative about coming up with solutions that are high quality, high level of design at an affordable price. We finish projects. I know I always look at projects and that we're doing as a development project and think, you know, what could we not have done? The developer mentality is maximize profit. So what could we not have done? What could we have spent less on and not diminish the project? And at the end of the day, I think not very much. And that we've come to the conclusion that introducing these design elements and these extra things that most developers would never think of putting in projects um, ultimately lead to the higher values of the project at the end. So. Yeah think design sells we've we've had our successes and failures you know we did some development just right coming into the recession and oh. clearly it was challenging and it didn't come out like you expected and we've had some projects we did quite well on and some that we kind of suffered but ultimately i think it's a it's a great thing it's a great idea and i think more architects should do it yeah um, i'd agree but it is challenging and it goes back to the conversation of of entrepreneur and and risk-taking and uh figuring out in this market how to finance things is is pretty crazy. Yeah. I like you said restrictions are helpful. I, yeah, like that. I think a lot of architects would agree with that. Okay. Is that the challenges that you have on a project, whether it be zoning or a budget or a client. Um, and I think maybe the opposite way to think about it is, you know, having a project that doesn't come out quite right and saying, well, it was the client's fault or it was the budget's fault. And I just, I don't think that's always the case. I think that if you're a good designer, you're going to design a solution that fits the, the requirements of the project and those restrictions sometimes do encourage more creative solutions. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, about the developer, we have a, we had a developer on our show almost about a year ago and he had said, uh, uh, he's a, he considers himself a lunatic and he said a lunatic. And I said, please explain what do you mean by a lunatic? And he described saying, well, look, you, you know, when, especially when you just start off on this, you know, people think that they're you know, developers are money grubbing type of people and making a lot of money, but they don't realize, you know, I, I, there are times where I stop off when I started that I would drive around town and knew that I'd be at a stoplight and it would turn green. And I was so focused on what I just invested in, which say is a $10 million project that I realized if it 
it doesn't work, I'm like down $10 million. (laughs) And and that's not a, that's not a normal person's stress. And he goes, but I chose it. So I have to deal with it. So that's what he says, you know, I'm a lunatic. And so we kind of inside joke is like, no, it's, it's true. And there maybe has to be a bit of lunacy in it if you want to do it, but (laughs) it it, it really is. It's risk. It's just that comfort comfort with risk. Right. And I I listened to that. That was Lou, right? It was Lou. Yeah. Yes, it was. Yeah. I didn't want to mention Lou's name in case he called and said, Hey, what are you talking about? But no, yes. And and, um, I think he had this great point is that everybody looks at developers and says they just, you know, they're rich and they make money and, and, and yeah, sometimes you do, but you know, sometimes you don't and that's part of it. And over in the long run, you hope that it comes out ahead. It's just like any gambling. It's like you hope that the odds are in your favor and not the house's favor. Yeah. And I think in development, you don't, you never know, you know, the, the market could turn in a second and yeah. Most developers have been in a position where they the market turns and they're sitting on a project. So it's not always rosy at the end. Yeah, I love. To, I want to touch again on on your breadth of experiences from uh, being a carpenter and a builder to an architect to a developer and doing those. That is something, at least from my perspective, as a perspective, even a client. I would highly value because you're able to leverage the time it would take to go somewhere else that. You know, that could be another year, but you can shave off a year at, you know, at best yeah. a year, if not more, having those experiences. How do you always share that in your, you know, in the, your company message? Well, I think it depends on the project and the client and whether or not they need or want the experience we have. It's another thing I think I came to late was realizing that I do have this sort of breadth of experience that a lot of people don't have and that we, we understand architecture from many different angles and whether it's from the constructability of things or whether from a development standpoint what what are the is this does this have financial outcomes does is this good is this bad is should i invest in this should i not how much money do i Mm -hmm. need where do i get the money and for the right client we actually can bring a lot to the table that most architects don't even think about so i mean we have some projects now that are smaller multi-unit buildings but not normal developers they're sort of end-user clients that plan on keeping the building or living in the building. And um, we have a client now who's trying to decide should his building be five units or 14 units. And and the city recently has passed or implemented some density bonus programs that didn't even exist when we started designing his project. And all of a sudden, the code says you can build five units, but we have this new program. If you give us some below market rate units will let you build more and taller. And so it's the whole financial analysis. It's no longer just what can we build here. It's like what makes sense financially. And so we're helping him analyze the project from a financial standpoint. And we can help on some of that. And I have a a friend and colleague who it's what he does for a living. He's a financial officer. So there you go, that access. So yeah, so we have access to somebody who can actually do a very, very detailed 10 year projection financial analysis of this project. And, and he did it for five units, 11 units and 14 units. And so helps the client make a decision. Clearly it costs more money to build a bigger building, but ultimately it was surprising to me that the cash he needed was not twice as much to build 14 units as five units. It was incrementally more and so hopefully we're going to redesign the building to be 14 units instead yeah. of five but so i guess you know we can bring that to the table which a normal architect no that's not gonna that's not common I, I, you may have heard of this story and some of our audience may have heard the story of picasso um whether it's true i mean it's true but it, i don't know how accurate it is with the numbers is uh, he was painting and uh along the, the, the coast and uh 
a woman asked to do a self-portrait and he said, sure, I'll do the self-portrait. And she's like, well, you know, char- how much do you charge? And he goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't have a specific fee for it, but if you want a portrait of yourself, I can do this. And she said, oh, absolutely. I want to have a picture, a picture of Picasso done by Picasso of my, for my family. And so he went ahead and said, I'll, I agree. And she goes, I'll pay you what, whatever you knew. And she thought what, what the amount was may vary, but she went ahead he went ahead and did a portrait. And, uh, and it took him like 15, 20 minutes to do a portrait. And she loved it. You know, so when he turned and said, what do you think? She's like, oh, this is great. My family will love it. It'll be a, a, a legacy. And uh, he said, well, you know, what do I owe you? And he's like, okay, $15,000. And she said, $15,000? It took you like 15, 20 minutes to draw. She says, no, it took me 15 to 20 years to be able to draw you in that 15 to 20 minutes. What's your, your yeah, thought on that? Well, I think in architecture, it takes a long time to learn our profession. And historically, there's an old saying, there's, there's young architects and great architects, but there's no great young architects and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, something, some variation yeah. of that. And, you know, I generally speaking, yeah, I mean, there's some definitely design wonder kids and there's some firms these days that are emerging quite early in, in life. Big is one of them. Bjork Ingalls is quite amazing and, you know, quite young for having this worldwide recognized firm and so it happens but it takes a long time to learn how to do what we do yeah i remember once 15 years ago so i'd been working for maybe 10 years and i met a new client and they brought me over to their house and they're telling me what they want to do and they want to expand the back of their house and everything and i can remember standing there and it was a a, kind of an epiphanous moment and that, that they're telling me what they want to do and i just immediately could say you can do this you can do this you can't do this you can't do that you can't do that and i remember kind of having the realization it's like wow I actually finally know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I didn't have to <laughs> sort of pretend, you yeah. know, and it took about 10 <laughs> years of working in yeah. San Francisco to understand the nuances of the codes and the planning department and all that stuff to where I could confidently stand there and say, this is what you can or can't do. And it made me realize that before that, for quite a while, I was sort of making it up as I went along. And I think a lot of architects, you know, end up doing that early in their profession because you don't know and you, you don't want your clients to know you don't know. Yeah. So you have to... <laughs> You know, smoke and mirrors a little bit. Young, I remember being a young architect and meeting an older architect, and he was. He said, "There's a lot of smoke and mirrors in what we do," and it's an interesting way to think about it. It's not dishonest to the client, but it takes a long time to learn all the nuances of this profession. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't recall which uh, which guest, or I may have heard this before, but it's like a, uh, a general architects don't really hit their stride to their like mid forties and on. Yeah, somewhat. Okay. Um, Is it because of all those? I just think it takes time to mature into a a style and into confidence about what you're doing and construction's complicated. Um, Not just the design of it, but how do you build it? And it just takes some time. Yeah. I think in this environment where we, where we live, where youthful exuberance is everywhere and um the tech world is you know with lots of people with lots of money doing amazing things at a very young age and sometimes i wonder how that trickles down into our profession and like i think you said we live in an area of sort of entrepreneurial spirit and so you know it must be somewhat pervasive and affect our profession as well yeah i like that youthful exuberance my belief is uh, that you can have that at 91 or older and there are people who are 21 who, want, who don't have it. Of course. <laughs> so yes. what's your... Uh, oh, I think absolutely. I yeah. think that you know, age is somewhat in your mind, so to a certain point. And I don't think many architects retire. <laughs> you know, when you think about it, I think I the, the profession never, of architecture, of there's a yeah. lot of architects that just, they just keep working one way or the other. And they may close their office, but then they're just doing projects for their friends or, 
You know? yeah. And I'm sure some people do, but it, it is a profession. I think that people tend to live their life doing that. That's terrific. Terrific. You're listening to the modern architect KZSU 90.1 FM Stanford. The mission of the Safe Haven Animal Sanctuary is to provide care in a peaceful environment for abused, handicapped, aged, or homeless animals. They also offer adoption services and relocation for feral cats in Silicon Valley. Safe Haven is located in the South Bay Area and is always seeking donations or volunteers. To learn more, call 408-420-7233 or visit safehavenanimalsanctuary.org. We're talking today with Jim Zack, architect and principal at Zach DeVito's Architecture and Construction. For more information, you can visit www.zachdevito.com. That's www.zachdevito.com. Jim, what mindset in your experience is needed to help architecture move up to kind of the 21st century and beyond? Well, I think as a profession, we're pretty connected to technology uh-huh. and maybe more so here where we live. But I think the digital world has definitely invaded architecture. <laughs> you I know, love that. It's pervasive. Okay, it I mean, and, and we, all, we all use technology in our profession day to day. And I think it's generally a wonderful thing. I mean, it's, I don't think it's ultimately saved people time because you just do more. And I think that's common with everything we do with, with technology and the internet and everything. And while there's early on people talking about how efficient everything was going to be, but you know, we, I think we just do more with the time we have, you know, we can uh, 10 years ago, if you wanted to do a 3d rendering, it was a, it was a independent thing of the drawings you needed to produce for permits and to construct. It was a separate independent thing and it cost the client money and it took a lot of time. And now the software we use is just a few clicks in the setup of a drawing and it's 3d and it's, you know, the term BIM building information Mm -hmm. modeling and whether you really use all of the tools that that allows or whether you just have pictures you can show your client, but to, within weeks of starting the design of a project, if you can show a client three-dimensional renderings, you know, we still build physical models, but they still take a lot of time and they show you something different than a three-dimensional image on a computer. But the 3D is great. Um, Virtual reality is... Yeah, what's your thoughts on virtual reality? Well, I I better get on board, I guess, is my number one thought. (laughs) I I think that it's... um, I've never experienced it, to be honest. And I think that it's there and it's available. And I was just reading an article a couple days ago. Some of the larger contractors are now taking the responsibility for that. And if the architect doesn't do it, the the contractors are Mm. doing it. And they're building 3D models or using 3D models from the architect and and creating these virtual reality environments. And it's, it's quite amazing. And they say it actually... You know, on a on a very large multi million dollar project, um, I can't probably afford to do that on a million dollar house project or two million dollar house project. But on a hundred million dollar institutional project, it's 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 really important. It says it saves them tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. Um, they don't have to do mock ups. You know, it's like they'd have to mock up yeah. the finishes of a a lobby or something, and now they don't have to do it. They can walk their client through it in a, in a yeah. virtual reality world. And so I think that's coming and it will be here really soon. I mean, it's here now. I think it'll just become more pervasive and I think the the cost of it will come down. Yeah, I think technology and in the way things are built, I think architects have been trying to figure out 
how to simplify construction and prefabricate things for, you know, a hundred years now. And, um, I think that in the last 10 or 15, there's been this big push for it and lots of prefab and generally speaking in residential and custom residential prefab. And I think it's, um, it hasn't grown to what people expected. And to me, it makes sense is that custom houses are still custom houses, whether you build it on the site or in a factory. And there's some limitations and there's some benefits to it. But what we're seeing now, particularly in the Bay Area, is this prefabrication for multi-unit housing. And it's really, I think, first time I've ever really seen something take off and say, this is going to change. For multi-housing. For multi-family housing. And it makes sense. And, you know, these developers that just took over architect and developer group that took over fabrication facility on Mare Island and converted it from a company that was doing more custom single family prefabrication to prefabrication for multifamily. And it's sort of sneaking in and more and more. Yeah. I mean, I, I, three or four years ago, I, I got invited to go to a factory up in Sacramento where they were making these modules. And if you think about it, these modules are as big as a a semi, that's Mm -hmm. what you can ship. So that's the limitation. What can you ship? What can you drive down the freeway? But they built a, I don't know, five or six story building with 30 units south of market and it kind of just slipped in. You know, I went over, I went up to the factory, <laughs> I saw them making the modules. And then a month later, I was just out and about and I went and watched them crane in these modules. And I think it's getting a lot of publicity um, now, which is great, but I think it's going to really transform how we build things. And in the Bay Area, the housing shortage, it's going to help a lot in terms yeah. of speeding up construction and minimizing costs. How, how do you, how much do you think publicity has a play in whether or not? a new technology or new process is accepted or, uh, well, I think it helps. It's mainstream or yeah. I it, think helps. it helps. Okay. I mean, I remember talking to maybe listening to the developer or the contractor of this first project I saw four or five years ago and saying, well, this didn't really save anybody any money. Um, it got the developer some publicity and it was kind of interesting for them to do it. But now they're doing that on, you know, 200 unit projects and they're still doing it. And I think the only reason is because it's economical develops or developers are economically driven. And so they wouldn't keep doing it and they wouldn't invest in it if it didn't work. I mean, that developer was doing bigger projects and kind of early adopter of this new technology. And maybe on that small project, he didn't benefit from it. But ultimately now five years later, they're doing it on many projects and it will ultimately. So publicity helps in the financing industry. is very conservative. And so you have to get them to finance the projects in a different way. All of a sudden, all the money is needed on the front end to go pay this factory. Yeah. You know, normally banks don't want to fund projects until it's delivered and built on the site. Yeah. Well, okay, well now it's not on the site. It's actually it's in this here. factory over here yeah. in, in Fresno. So, um, <laughs> so that has <laughs> to, to shift change with the, the financing. Finance. Right. But I think that, you know, it is slowly shifting. And so the publicity does help if the banker reads an article about the success of this project and sees how this is now changing the method of delivery that all helps. Yeah. So. Yeah. What I've got a quote here, but I, uh, you may uh, want to hear your take on it. And I, I've said it before, but the mother arc, is architecture without an architecture of our own. We have no soul of our own civilization by Frank Lloyd Wright. What's your, your take on that? Well, I think that we were chatting a little bit before about cities and mm-hmm. urban planning and your idea of an architecture advocate in politics. And in Europe, I think that they've always had that. I think socially that Europe has a higher level of appreciation for design in general and for their cities in general. And, and I don't think in America, you know, look at our suburbs, um, you know, so I don't think the average American has much appreciation for uh, design and architects are sometimes, you know, looked down upon as being 
word escapes me, but you know, elitist, you know, <laughs> okay. I guess elitist, you know, in a sense. And, the, you know, what's wrong with my house out in the suburbs and, you know, pick a neighborhood. And, but architects, I suppose we are elitist, but we look at suburban development and think it can be so much better, but the economics of it doesn't work. They don't want to pay for architecture. In early, is it that much ex- more expensive to have good architecture? Well, I don't think it's that much more expensive. Okay. I, mean, I think that you have to think about it. You have to want to do it. And there's always been inspired developers that do do it. I got quite interested in helping rebuild up in Santa Rosa, in the area huh. in Santa Rosa, you know, soon after the fire. And I've kind of lost my energy on it. But, you know, Coffee Park neighborhood, 1,300 houses, and they were all pretty run-of-the-mill, standard, very cheap suburban yeah. houses and now how do you rebuild them and how can you do it with a higher level of design and i think that the general pattern is going to be that the same builders that built those houses 40 years are going to come back with their same sort yeah. of house plans <laughs> out of a book and, yeah. and build these houses and there were lots of architects interested in trying to do something different i mean i had an idea it's like why don't i just design a house you know my own little eichler so to speak and yeah. design a plan and, and try to sell that plan to homeowners but um, I guess I am entrepreneurial, so at least I thought about it, yeah. but it is a bit daunting to think about how am I going to do that? I mean, how am I going to sell that to people and how am I going to, you know, but the idea that instead of one homeowner having to hire an architect and pay them fifty or $60,000 that they don't have because their insurance wasn't enough, but if you could do one design and sell it to 20 people, well, that's there only $5,000 a person. Yeah. So I think there's ideas that could be done, but... It's hard to implement. Yeah, no, I love that that, that idea. Yeah, Anything so. else that we may not have covered in our uh, our show, Jim, that you'd like to share with our, um, your audience? I just think it's great yeah. to be here, and I love being involved in this thing you've created. It's quite wonderful, and um, no, I think that's great. We'd, Jim, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you. Hope you consider coming back on our show. Really enjoyed it. You, really, yeah. thank you very much. Thank it's been a talk. pleasure. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom DiOro. Our guest today has been Jim Zack, architect and principal of Zack DeVito Architecture and Construction, a multidisciplinary design office and architect-led construction company providing architecture, interior design, and construction services throughout Northern California. For more information, feel free to visit www.zackdevito.com. That's www.zackdevito.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto and on location throughout the Bay Area and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Chagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kcsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kcsu.stanford.edu.
Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.